You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Uh, before we get started, I want to tell you about a new podcast I think you should check out. You should check it out if you are uh, emotionally ready, or even if you're not, I guess, for the 2020 presidential election. It's coming, people. Whether or not you like it, this thing is uh, this thing is happening. It is upon us, and the Primary Ride Home Podcast, which is a new uh, daily show brought to you by the same folks that make the Tech Meme Ride Home Podcast, who have sponsored the show before. It's Silicon Valley's favorite daily news podcast. Anyway, they got a new show, and it's all about the 2020 primary race. It comes out every day at 5 p.m., and it's hosted by veteran journalist and This American Life contributor Chris Higgins. Chris and his team are going through everything that's happened that day. They're summarizing it. It's like a TLDR. So you don't have to sit there on your phone scrolling 2020 news all day. They'll just give you the important stuff of what happened in 15 minutes at 5 p.m. every day. Go find it right now in your podcast app of choice. It's called Primary Ride Home. That's the Primary Ride Home podcast. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. And here is that show. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. I have no idea who's on the show this week. No. Because Max show. kept it a secret from us. Uh, well, I just wanted you guys to be on your toes. And here's why you should be on your toes. This is a terrible <laughs> segue. Uh, the world is ending. The person on the show this week is David Wallace-Wells. Oh, oh wow. hey. You got him. I got him. Yeah, I got him. He wrote Fantastic. a book. It's called uh, The Uninhabitable Earth. It's uh, It's about the end of the earth. I've heard uh, I've heard good things about the bad things in this book. Uh, it is an incredible book. I will say it is uh, it's not an easy read, uh, but it is about uh, he is trying to uh, take a very very sober look at what the world uh, we are heading towards with climate change will actually look like in a practical sense for your life and my life and uh, all of our lives. And it turns out uh, pretty rough, pretty pretty rough. It's the answer. I don't know if you talked to him about this, but I think that, uh, you know, when you, you write about something and it becomes really successful, you, a lot of people on the show write about a lot of things, but then they write about one thing and that thing, that book or that story becomes so successful that it's all people want to talk to you about. This is a particularly like rough story to have be your big success. I feel like, I mean, like Evan gets to be a expert in super villainy. That's something people always like to talk about. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I, I feel like, um, that is like a certain kind of burden, but also like one, my senses he is pretty game for. 
but it was really uh, interesting and uh, terrifying to talk to him. Uh, if you've got some uh, bad news that you need to get out to a lot of people, uh, probably the best way to do it is with an email newsletter from MailChimp. They make it easy, affordable, and uh, also generally fun to send out an email newsletter. So uh, thanks to them for supporting the show. Now here's Max with David Wallace-Wells. Hey, David. Hey. Welcome to the show. Oh, man. Thanks for having me. It's really great to be here. Uh, It is great to have you. Uh, Sort of. (laughs) It's only sort of great. I mean, it is great to have you. But uh, I uh, finished your book, and I'm feeling weird. Yeah, it's bleak. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. The world is bleak. The world is bleak. We're going to talk about the book and the bleakness of the world, but I would like to start not with the book, but with the article that seems like it propelled all of this for you, Mm -hmm. which was a piece in 2017 that at the time was New York Magazine's most read article ever. Yeah. Can you help me? Because you cover all kinds of things and you're Mm -hmm. editing all sorts of stuff. And I wondered as I was reading the book, I went back and read the piece from 2017. What like... What led you to there? How did you, why'd you write that piece? Well, you know, I'm just sort of temperamentally and a little bit in my professional career sort of been interested in the near future. And so I'm always kind of keeping an eye on, you know, academic research and the corners of the internet that speculate a little more wildly, a lot of times irresponsibly about what's going to happen 10, 20 years from now. And, you know, starting in 2016, I just was seeing a ton of a ton more climate coverage in those places than I had seen before. And then I also felt that it was way scarier than it was being written about in places like the Times and the Washington Post and the magazines that we consider competitors and the TV programs that pretend to do serious news. And I sort of had a, a mercenary journalistic impulse, which was just, this is an incredible story. Like this story is so big. It's so dramatic and no one is telling it adequately. Mm-hmm. No one is telling it in its cinematic dimensions, by which I mean sort of its like horrifying dimensions. You know, I I saw three major shortcomings in the way that most climate storytelling had been done. And the first is about speed. So I, like a lot of other people, had grown up thinking that climate change was real, was something to worry about, but was going to happen in a really long time, maybe in my children's lifetime, probably in my grandchildren's lifetime. And that that meant we had a lot of time to grow our way out of the problem, to invent our way out of the problem, and to sort of engineer some political solutions. But, you know, half of all the emissions that we've produced in the entire history of humanity from the burning of fossil fuels have come in the last 30 years. So I'm 36 years old. That means that this is a story of my lifetime, And 30 years ago, the planet was stable. There were scientists who were worried about the future, but functionally, it was a stable, livable place. And now we're 30 years later on the brink of catastrophe. And my lifetime contains that entire story. And the burning of fossil fuels that have brought us that far, a lot of it was done in my name as a kind of relatively well-off person in the wealthy West. And now we're already seeing the kind of the impacts of that in real time. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the unprecedented heat waves across the whole northern hemisphere last summer, the wildfires in California burning 1.8 million acres last year, the hurricane after hurricane in the Caribbean, 
And, you know, that's real fast. That's not slow. Um, and that was one major insight I had looking deeper in the research and figuring it out for myself was that this was not a slow story. It was a really fast story. And the second big misconception was about scope. So, you know, again, I sort of felt like I'd been led to believe that if I lived off the coast, I was safe because climate change was about sea level rise. Right. And the more I learned about all the things that are impacted by climate, you know, public health now projected that mosquitoes that used to only live in the tropics are going to be flying as far north as the Arctic Circle in short order to conflict. There's, you know, for every half degree of warming, we get between a 10 and 20% increase in conflict. So if we end up at the end of the century, we're on track for, we're going to have more than twice as much war as we have today. Economic growth, it's like, if we, again, if we end up where we're on track for, we're going to have a global GDP that's at least 20%, maybe 30% smaller than we would without climate change, which is 30% is an impact that's twice as big as the Great Depression and is permanent. These are not impacts that you can escape by living a little bit off the coast, no matter where you are. In the deep heartland of America, right? This is the grain belt. Our grains are going to be literally half as productive as they are today. Can I just stop you quickly? Yeah. You're doing this thing right now, which you also basically do in the book, which and you did in the piece, which is like stack facts. Like uh, they just keep coming yeah. at you. And I was going to ask about this later, but I'll just ask about it now. Like help me understand just from a like writing standpoint, from a, a narrative standpoint, how conscious is that choice? Like literally, I, I actually listened to the audio book. Mm-hmm. And that was my vocal fry. It's like it is now. <laughs> but it also, like, what you were just doing sounds like the book. Yeah. And I just, I wonder how conscious that choice was to just kind of, like, lay out fact after fact after fact about where where we were headed and, and what that decision was about. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a, a few different models in mind when I was writing the article and when I was writing the book. But for the chunk of the book that was, like, most deeply scientific... So it's in the four sections. There's kind of like a big opening overture. Then there's like a big section that's deep in the science and it's 12 chapters, each of which is about a particular climate threat. Then there's a section that's basically about what I think of as the humanities of climate change, which is not just what the science says, but what it'll mean for the way that we all live on the planet together. And then there's a kind of outro section. And that second section, which is in a certain way, like the heart of the book, you know, the model for that really was Twitter. Hmm. For me, I mean, my experience of just seeing a stream of facts and like the emotional impact that that has on me as a reader was so, I don't know, it's like much, anytime I read any analysis about climate change or any like big picture assessment of the story, I felt like it was removed and cold and almost inhuman, even though it was often talking about human impacts. And the most visceral experience I had was just like, being drowned in the data. Mm-hmm. And personally, I looked at the storytelling that was done elsewhere on climate, and I just thought that was not being done by anyone else, that everybody was so worried about boring readers and about being too geeky and wonky that they sort of didn't lead with the facts. They led with like broad strokes depictions. And I found those broad strokes depictions like too abstract to wrap my head around. Mm -hmm. And when I came upon like a single paper that says like between 1.5 degrees and two degrees of warming, just that half degree of warming, just through the impact of air pollution, there'll be 153 million additional deaths. 
I was like, I don't need someone to rhapsodize for me about what that will mean. That number alone has all the poetry that you need in it, especially if you realize that it's like 25 Holocaust that you're dealing with. And because we're not likely to avoid two degrees of warming, that means that's sort of our best case scenario is death from air pollution at the scale of 25 Holocausts. And I just felt, you know, the science itself was that compelling Hmm. that the most narratively exciting thing to do was to give it an unfiltered platform. And, you know, it's interesting, especially in the aftermath of the article, somewhat in the aftermath of the book, you know, I get asked a lot about alarmism and like the approach of the book, which is, you know, among many things, its goal is to alarm people. And I, you know, I really feel like it's not me that's doing the alarming, it's the science. Mm -hmm. And if you're terrified by these facts, like you should be. And if previous climate writing allowed you to not be terrified of those facts or enabled your own impulses towards complacency and denial, which I should say up front, like I have those impulses too, like we all do. I, um, I think it's crazy to pretend that we don't. But if earlier climate writing sort of encouraged those impulses, then it was irresponsible because the science is like really clear and it's really scary. The bleakness is inescapable. We're going to get to the bleakness, but I want to stay with you and your experience here for a second. (laughs) Yeah. So when that article came out in 2017, I I remember like it is rare. I'd say it happens like half a dozen times a year, maybe that like an article goes truly viral. And that one did. And almost immediately, I mean, this is just my experience of it. It was like, um, it was getting like rebutted very publicly. Yeah. And I remember the kind of energy around it really quickly was like, there was some skepticism around it. Help me understand what that experience was like for you. Like you put this thing out in the world. It certainly was the most consumed thing you had ever written. Right. Yeah. And people are sort of like both freaking out and attacking it kind of. What, What was that like for you? Well, really complicated. Right. So, in a certain sense, I had predicted it. In the article I wrote about this phenomenon that James Hansen, who's a kind of legendary climate scientist, um, called scientific reticence, which was that he felt his colleagues were, for a very long time, reluctant to talk openly about the scarier possibilities for climate change. And he thought that that was a real disservice to the public, that we were not as informed as we should have been. And I wrote about that in the piece not in a major way, but I, I discussed it a little bit. And I knew that I was violating a lot of best practices, conventional wisdom among climate scientists and among climate writers. Which is basically like... Uh, Always be optimistic. That was really like the overwhelming conventional wisdom was that... I mean, it's a little weird because as a journalist, right, I think... Our main obligation is to truth-telling. You know, like anyone who spends time in climate science, it's hard not to feel some pull of advocacy and activism. But fundamentally, I come to the subject as a journalist, and I really do feel like if the best papers that are being published in science and nature, like our best academic journals, are saying we're gonna, there are going to be places in the world that are hit by six climate-driven natural disasters at once, if the UN is saying that by 2050, we'll have 200 million climate refugees at least, and possibly a billion, which is many people as live in North and South America combined, then 
the obligation of journalists is to tell that story. But a lot of climate journalists and certainly climate scientists felt compromised in that truth-telling in that they really wanted, above all, to address the problem. And they had developed a kind of approach that, you know, has some interpersonal wisdom in it, had some basis in social science, but I think was basically foolish that there was only one way to responsibly talk about climate change, and that was to emphasize the optimistic, hopeful aspects of what we could do if we all took action. Because that would spur action? They felt that was the most effective way to mobilize people. And, you know, my own feeling was, again, my first impulse was like, well, this is happening. We should be talking about it. (laughs) You know, and the argument would have to be so overwhelming that it would be counterproductive for me to even consider editing my understanding of the truth in my presentation of it. But I found the evidence not just not overwhelming. I found it really kind of paltry and unconvincing. And by that, I mean, you know, when you look at the history of environmental activism, fear and alarmism have always been a part of the most successful efforts. When Rachel Carson published Silent Spring, it was called Hyperbolic and Alarmist, led to the ban on DDT. It basically led to the creation of the EPA, the anti-nuclear energy movement, which I'm not so happy with, but that was majorly powered by fear and alarm against nuclear proliferation at the military level. That was the same way against drunk driving, against cigarette smoking. These are all public campaigns that really drew on fear and really effectively. And it seemed so obvious to me that there was wisdom in that for climate change, in part because my own awakening followed the same course. Like 10 years ago, I thought climate change was an important thing to worry about, but it didn't dominate my view of the future because I trusted, first of all, I just didn't think it was that significant a threat, but also I trusted that our leaders would sort of be responsible enough to address it responsibly. And the thing that shook me from that complacency was fear, was being terrified about what was possible. Mm -hmm. And when I said there was some interpersonal wisdom in it, um, I know now activists who are on the brink of despair. But when I look around the world, I'm like, there are so many more people like me who are too complacent than there are people mm-hmm. who are too fatalistic about this. So, you know, they also, the scientists also like pointed to the social science. And in fact, in the aftermath of my article, there was a piece published in Nature that did a sort of literature review and found that, you know, hope and optimism work on some people. And alarm and fear work on other people Mm -hmm. and there's no way of knowing going in what's going to work on whom and so you should just sort of tell whatever your story is and my story was i'm freaking out Hey, I'm going to put things on hold with david for just a second and uh, tell you about some sponsors making today's show possible first up our friends at the brand new podcast, Primary Ride Home. Primary Ride Home is from the same folks that make the Tech Meme Ride Home podcast, which is Silicon Valley's favorite daily news podcast. And this new show, Primary Ride Home, is a daily podcast all about the 2020 presidential race. Someone is going to challenge the sitting president next year, and the Primary Ride Home podcast is going to help you figure out who that might be. It's hosted by Chris Higgins. He's a veteran journalist, This American Life contributor. And every day at 5 p.m., Chris is going to put out this show where he and his team have gone through everything that's happened in the presidential race that day. They'll summarize it for you. You'll know what happened, but you don't have to sit there and like just live and die on the second-by-second news cycle of what is going to be a very long 
and potentially trying election season. You're going to want to know what's happening in the 2020 race. You are not going to want to spend all of your time living and breathing the 2020 race. And so you should subscribe to the Primary Ride Home podcast. It's just 15, 20 minutes, comes out at 5 p.m., and it'll give you everything you need to know. Search your podcast app wherever you're listening to this for Primary Ride Home. That's Primary Ride Home podcast. Thanks so much to them for sponsoring the show. And thanks also to our friends at The Great Courses Plus. If you are uh, a curious person, which you are because you're listening to the Longform Podcast, I suggest you try The Great Courses Plus. It's a streaming service that offers in-depth and unique perspectives from top engaging experts in their fields on virtually any topic. It's hard for me to even pick an example for the examples are so vast. Here's the basic idea of The Great Courses Plus. You can learn about whatever you want to know more about with unlimited access to watch and listen to these lectures anytime, anywhere. But I also want to stress, like, it's not school. There's no exams, no homework. This is not going to be something that like eats away at you and you feel like uh, you have to like uh, take your medicine. It's not medicine. It's just a place to indulge your curiosity and also to get some like real practical tips. They've got a course, which I think you'll be interested in, seeing as how you listen to this show, called Writing Creative Nonfiction. It's a, a real step-by-step look at the stuff that we're talking about on this show all the time. It's everything from brainstorming ideas to creating a narrative arc finding compelling characters, and then how you can actually reach an audience, get published. There's all kinds of courses like that on The Great Courses Plus. Anything you can think of, they kind of got it covered. So take your knowledge to the next level with The Great Courses Plus and enjoy this special limited time offer. Get a full month to enjoy The Great Courses Plus for free only at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash longform. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash longform. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. And let's get back to David Wallace-Wells. So you, you predicted, you knew that some kind of reaction was going to come from taking this different tact of the like alarmist, I'm freaking out tact, not the like, eh, this can be intense, but we're, we're going to be okay yeah. tact. But just for you personally like as a journalist what were those next three days like sitting in your yeah. at your desk well it's downtown sort of like, manhattan like the, the internet freaking out yeah. about this thing you would put out in the world well i think it's useful to sort of divide the reaction into two groups of criticism so there was the sort of rhetorical criticism which we basically talked about and i thought that that was a valid argument and worth having i felt like i was right that there was value in alarm but i also thought that the people who felt differently were informed and serious and sincere and i was sort of happy to have those arguments and looking forward to it when i published the piece there was also this um the science here is irresponsible line and i basically felt angry at that pushback and you know The piece was really thoroughly fact-checked. We also, more importantly, within a couple of days, published a totally annotated version of the piece. And that was because we felt really strongly that everything in there came from really good science and really good research. And, you know, science is imperfect and it gets revised. And, you know, 20 years from now, people are going to look back on that piece and say, oh, this didn't come to pass as it's predicted. And that didn't come to pass as predicted. And that's going to be true for the book too. But as a snapshot of what we understood at the moment, we felt really strongly, I mean, me, my editor, my fact checker, my editor in chief, that like, it really was a quite 
responsible treatment of the science. And I think ultimately that sort of answered the scientific critique, but it took three or four days. And so there was this initial wave of scientists who didn't recognize or understand the research that we were summarizing, taking issue with it. And I actually think that that did some real damage that yeah, I mean, like I say, I was angry about. Yeah. And and so the way you like channeled that anger was just by like, I'm going to annotate the whole fucking thing for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, because I, it's just the science is there. And even if you take issue with this little piece or that little piece, you know, I was working really directly off the UN. The UN has this climate change body called the IPCC, which every whatever, eight years or so puts out a, a major report that summarizes all the climate science. And just about everybody who works in climate understands that this is a conservative body that makes produces a conservative report because it's has to get everyone to agree to it. So that's like probably understates the issue. But putting that aside, I was working really directly from what they said we were doing. We were like on track for a little over four degrees of warming by the end of the century. And like the 95th percentile of what was possible was about eight degrees of warming by the end of the century. And Every climate scientist you'd ask, like nobody thinks that four degrees or eight degrees is like a happy place. They would all say that it was would be a punishing, hellish environment that would make civilization a kind of untenable proposition or something close to that. And yet they didn't want that same perspective shared with the public. And they used the sort of alibi, I think, of scientific irresponsibility to undermine the piece as a whole, even though, as I say, it really was drawn very directly from all of this work I showed. And so I think that the initial response was from people who recognized it as a work of climate alarmism and basically felt, therefore, it was irresponsible. Mm -hmm. And then approaching the particular claims of the article from an assumption of its irresponsibility, thought, when they saw this fact or that fact, they thought, well, I haven't seen that before. Right. I haven't seen that before. Therefore, it must be bullshit. So aside from annotating the hell out of it and putting yeah. it out on the internet, how do you respond when your work is getting attacked in that way, particularly when it is by far, at least on metrics of like uh, eyeballs, the most successful consumed thing that you have ever written? Like, how do you how do you respond beyond showing your work on your own website. Well, what do you mean? Like emotionally or do you mean like... Yeah, I kind of mean emotionally. I mean, yeah. I, I mean like I was just thinking about you during that time yeah. and wondering what it was like. Yeah. I mean, it was... Um, it's funny. I said at the time, like, I, I never understood, you know, when like there'd be interviews with like an athlete after they won a championship and they would be talking about the haters or like someone who won a Grammy talking about the haters. And I'm like... You guys just won. Why are you talking about the haters? But I spent like a couple weeks being like, fuck you, haters. <laughs> um, but I think like the only, in terms of public response, I do think like the only reasonable thing to do is just be respectful and responsive to the concerns that are being raised. Because a lot of these, you know, I should say like most of the response was positive. It's not like it yeah, was yeah, like... Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm focusing on... Yeah, on no, well, it's... An, I mean, like, for especially in this context for this podcast, it's sort of an important story to talk about, I think. But a lot of the people who were raising 
taking issue with the article were people I admired enormously. Some of them were people I interviewed for the piece and whose work I, you know, I drew on in some form or another. Um, Michael Mann was like sort of the most prominent one. I later did a kind of public event with him where we talked it through. We're now sort of pals. We did Morning Joe together recently. Um, and, you know, I tried to build those kinds of relationships with those people in general. But it was actually, what's what was interesting to me was that it was easier to have those kinds of conversations with scientists than it was with climate journalists. In the immediate aftermath of the piece, there were sort of two climate journalists who I really, whose work I really admired and follow quite closely, who wrote pieces about my piece that were quite, I thought, quite negative. Eric Holthouse, who works at Grist, and Chris Mooney, who works at the Washington Post. And as I like, these are people who I'm in awe of both of them. I'm a latecomer to this story. I don't, I don't mean to um, criticize them or like attack them personally. I'm just, I think it's illustrative of how much the entire climate community was enthralled to a very particular kind of storytelling and had a very immediate reflexive response to anything that took a different approach. Each of them, you know, they, they raised some, Eric raised some vague concerns on Twitter. Chris emailed me to say that he was going to be writing about the story. And to each of them, I said, please tell me everything that you have issues with and I can supply you with my backup. This is before we published the annotation. And neither of them took me up on that. And both of them went ahead and listed their problems with the piece before getting that information from me. And Michael Mann, I can't argue with Michael Mann if he wants to take issue with my piece. Like, his standing on this on these issues is unimpeachable. Who's Michael Mann just for uh, people oh, who are listening? So he's, he's like one of the major public climate figures. He's at Penn State, I think. And he is most famous for... Um, coming up with what was called the hockey stick graph, which is just one of those graphs that shows how much more dramatic uh, global warming has gotten in the last couple of decades. And because he got famous for that, he also was the subject of a lot of climate denial and disinformation wars. And so he's he's been in the crucible of this for a long time. You know, like I said, we're, we're now on the same page and he's a supporter of mine. And like, But even at the time, while I was frustrated that he took issue with it, I couldn't argue with him. But the journalist, I was like, we're talking the same language. I can, you know, I can walk you through what I'm doing here if you want to take me up on that. But they didn't. Do you have a theory as to why? Well, I think that, you know, there was a kind of um, a general perception in the climate community, which includes climate journalists, that I was um, an interloper, that I had never written about climate before, and that I was doing a really dangerous thing by publishing a story of this kind. And you know, one way that you become a prominent journalist with any particular beat is by earning the respect of your sources and the people who you write about. And I think it's a kind of strategic thing to do to follow the impulses of those people in your own writing, even when you're not writing about them. And I think there were a lot of like email chains and listservs where people were like, what the fuck is this guy Wallace Wells doing? And that they were, they took that impulse and ran with it. But, um, you know, ultimately, I think it was a disservice to the piece. And then pulling back a little bit, like, I have to say, I don't at all take credit for this. I think I've just sort of surfed the wave of it. But the perspective of that community now on what amounts to useful rhetoric on climate is really different just two years later. 
I think mostly that has to do with the report that the UN released last October, which was dramatically more alarmist in its tone than any report that they had produced before, and which produced a much bigger response in the public than had ever been produced before. But I also think that we're seeing more new kinds of storytelling about climate every day. And we're seeing those works of journalism reach much bigger audiences than anything used to reach before. And I think that conventional wisdom has really changed as a result. Like Now, I don't think that old guard climate scientists, most of them think that alarmist rhetoric is the best way maybe to talk about climate, but they're much less hostile to it than they were a year or two ago. So if you cast your mind backward with that perspective, it wasn't just a disservice to my piece. It was really a disservice to the cause that they were trying to um, shut down an incredibly widely read hair-raising account that literally millions of people found profoundly shaking to their perception of the future and what is necessary to avoid some of these dramatic outcomes. Could you see that clearly in the moment? Or was there any point where you questioned yourself a little bit? Well, on particular facts, yeah. I mean, anytime someone like flagged something and said, sure. this is concerning, I was like, wait, did I get that wrong? Shit. Um, on the rhetorical approach, basically not. I think because I was working on it so exclusively from the imperative of truth-telling. And I hadn't even yet gotten to the point where I am now where the sort of advocacy impulse was an important secondary impulse. My goals were really much more about sharing the information and the story as I saw it. And so on that point, I didn't think that whether I had taken a quote-unquote irresponsible approach was ultimately all that relevant if I got the science right. And in that, you know, I thought a lot about Tanasi Coates, who like sent me a note. It was like, it's not your job to make people feel better. You know, it's your job to tell the truth. If the truth is scary, that's on the truth. <laughs> he didn't say it exactly like that, but he was like, it's not your job to make people feel better. And, um, you know, I didn't, I hadn't been thinking my work in such grand terms to like compare myself to him. But um, as a reminder of what it is that like we all as journalists are doing, it was really helpful and kind of anchoring. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it sounds really like cocky to say, but I think basically, no, I didn't, I didn't doubt it. Um, On the other hand, you could say I wrote a book that was actually much less focused on worst case scenarios. The article was really focused on this range four degrees, which is like what we're on track for at the end of the century, up to eight degrees, which is like if we don't change anything and all of our estimates are wrong, where we'll end up. And the book is really pretty rigorously focused on um, this range south of four degrees. So four degrees is basically the ceiling of what I'm looking at. And I'm I'm looking at impacts that are going to hit as soon as two degrees, which is, I think, basically our best case scenario. And so in that sense, I did adjust the book is, you know, I don't think there's really any plausible case you could make that that range two degrees to four degrees is irresponsible to think about because it's our best case scenario up to where we're headed. And uh, that means that we're almost certain to land somewhere in that range. 
and therefore i think we have to think seriously about it also no one no one could read that many words about eight degrees it's pretty bleak you can't you can't but i think the really crazy thing is that you know it's not that much less bleak right (laughs) at three degrees i mean you know it's a sort of plausible case you could make that at eight degrees the prospect of human civilization becomes a little problematic i don't think that's the case at four degrees but when you're sitting at one degree where we are now looking at what is going to happen if we don't change course at four degrees so we're talking about 30 percent smaller gdp you know, six climate-driven natural disasters. We talked about all this stuff before, but twice as much war, more maybe. Um, You know, from the vantage of here, that looks like civilization won't be able to survive. I think the sort of tragic likely path forward is that we just end up normalizing a lot of that suffering and our descendants live actually not all that different from the way that we do. So I mentioned earlier this sort of hair-raising paper that says that just between one and a half degrees and two degrees, just that extra half degree of warming is going to kill 150 million people from air pollution alone, which is as many people, 25 times the death toll of the Holocaust. And when I say that to people, they're like, their eyes open, they're like, oh my God, this suffering is such an unconscionable scale. And um, it is, right? But 9 million people are dying already every year from air pollution. That's a Holocaust every year right now. And our lives aren't meaningfully oriented around those people and those deaths. And very few people that we know have their lives meaningfully oriented around those people and those deaths. And I think it's quite likely that going forward, those impulses of compartmentalization and denial and narcissism will continue to govern our response to this crisis, which is really tragic. To some people, it's comforting because it means that the people in the affluent West will be, they'll look around and say things are kind of okay, even, and they'll be talking about my book 75 years from now and thinking, this guy was such an alarmist. But if we really get to a place where by 2050, the biggest cities in India and the Middle East are going to be unlivably hot in summer, these are cities that now house 12 million, 15 million people where you won't be able to walk outside without risking heat stroke and possibly death. That is a really, really different world. And I think it's important for us to understand, you know, climate change is universal. It's going to hit all of us. It's going to change all of our lives in some way, but it's also unequal. Mm. And it's going to hit the people who are poorest most intensely. It's already hitting them quite intensely now. That stuff you're just talking about, the inequality in how this is going to play out, I want to talk about that. But there's something else that connected to what you said earlier, too, which was that your point of view and your feelings around advocacy have changed and evolved from the article to the book. And I mean, one of the the sort of central ideas in the book is that at least for yourself and you are extrapolating out onto others, the motivation to act is going to be personal. It's not for you, at least, I mean, you write about this in the book, like it's not um, thinking about polar bears. It's like thinking about your kid uh, and thinking about yourself. And I wonder if you could just walk me through the evolution of your feelings around advocacy from the piece to the book. Like what changed for you on that front? I think mostly it was just spending more time with the material. So, you know, it's one thing to have a kind of sociopathically journalistic approach to the subject 
when you're writing one piece and it's taking you a bunch of months and, and that's it. And it's another thing to maintain that perspective over the course of years as you're seeing more and more of it. But, you know, it's also seeing so many people engage with the first big thing I wrote on the subject, you know, meant that I had to, I don't know, it sounds really kind of gooey. I had to sort of take seriously that responsibility. Um, it's okay to be gooey. It's a long yeah. form podcast. It can be gooey. <laughs> and I mean, you know, there are people out there, there are climate writers and thinkers who are considerably more fatalistic about it than I am. And in certain ways, I can't argue with them because our record is so abysmal. But, you know, I'm also weirdly a temperamental optimist. I think it's like one of the central facts of this story is that as horrifying as everything sounds, it will be our doing if we bring those scenarios into the realm of the real. If we get to four degrees of warming, it'll be because of what we do going forward. The main driver of climate change is what we do, how much carbon we put into the atmosphere. And ultimately, that's a reminder of how much power we have over the system. It can seem so overwhelming, especially when you think about it in terms of all of the political and economic and cultural inertia. But like we collectively, as a humanity, are doing this. And like we've done this incredible damage in the space of 30 years. We've brought the planet from the total stability to the brink of catastrophe in 30 years. We now have about 30 years to avert really dramatic, horrifying impacts. That means that you and I and everyone else on this planet are protagonists in literally the greatest story ever told, right? This is a saga that used to be understood at the scale of mythology and theology, and we are living it ourselves, and we have the responsibility of securing a future for the entire species, a prosperous, fulfilling, just future for the entire species. That will be the story of our lifetime. And to me, that's like an incredibly empowering and demanding perspective. And again, my own temperamental inclinations are not to be an activist. I'm not a joiner at all. You know, that's, that's why I'm a writer. But it's impossible to look this problem in the face and not think, well, I need to do something. Anyway, that's my, that's my awakening. Once you have that awakening, how do you uh... go on living? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I when I uh basically through compartmentalization and denial like everybody else. I mean, I um but that like uh levy has not been breached for you? I mean, that was what I was thinking about reading the book. Was like you got a little kid. Yeah. You're editing these pieces in New York Magazine, you know, having drinks like uh watching basketball. Watching basketball. Yep. How? Like how how do you put that to the side? Like, how do you compartmentalize this once you're as deep in as you are? 
well, do you just watch the Knicks? I mean, I think the answer is not how. It's like, how do we avoid that? Because I think those are really, really deep psychological reflexes that we all have towards immediate conceptions of our own self-interest. I mean, I think we're, you know, I hate using this language, but like we're built, we're wired to like not want to think about really bad things, <laughs> to focus on our own immediate needs and that we see those impulses at every level. Like I see it in my life when I wake up and play with my daughter and I'm not thinking about, you know, heat death or whatever. I see it at the level of our media culture where in our newsrooms, any journalist you ask would tell you, I'd really say like 80% of journalists would tell you, okay, climate change is the story of our time. I think that's now like a quite conventional perspective among people who are seriously engaged in the news. But it's not on the front page of the New York Times every day. It's not on the nightly news every night. When the news programs cover weather disasters, they rarely connect it to climate change. We have, you know, at the level of our politics, we are finally in America developing a serious climate politics for the first time, 30 years after we all really knew what the issues were. And that's because, and I would say at the international level too, which is for me actually the most important one, you know, we signed the Paris Accords 2016, which is not that long ago. No major industrial nation is on track to meet its commitments under Paris, which even if we met all of those commitments would still bring us to three degrees of warming, which would be unbelievably catastrophic None of us are honoring those commitments. And that, to me, is an illustration of the same natural impulse towards self-interest that we all have as individuals. Even if all the leaders of the world agree that this is a very serious issue that we need to take action on, each nation is individually incentivized to take slower action, extract whatever small benefits they can from continuing to burn fossil fuels and letting the rest of the world do additional work. So to me, it's like we all inevitably live in compartmentalization and denial and self-interest. The fact that I still live that way in large part, not as much as I used to, but in large part, is a sign of just how intense those impulses are. That you can spend a couple of years of your life doing almost nothing but imagining really horrific climate scenarios that just about every scientist in the world would say are reasonable projections of our medium-term future. And yet, the human animal responds in part by becoming more of an activist, in part by writing a book, but the majority of the time by living exactly as he did in the years before, making decisions about his own life in the ways that he did before. And ultimately, to me, this is among many really valuable arguments on climate for politics and policy action rather than individual action, this is a quite powerful one. What we call hypocrisy, I think, is often an expression that we should be better collectively than we are as individuals. If I'm taking a vacation in which I fly by plane, that is bad behavior when it comes to climate, right? 
but my impulse may be still to take it. If every plane in the sky is electric, or every plane in the sky is flying on carbon-neutral fuels, I can take that vacation and not impose a carbon burden on the future of the planet. That is what politics can achieve much more effectively and efficiently and thoroughly than any campaign to reduce your carbon footprint or my carbon footprint, in part because if we want dramatic climate action, we need the support of the majority of the public. And the majority of the public is simply not going to sign up to those standards. But we can make policy changes that have the same impact on our carbon if we get more moderate people on board. If we say to those people, you can never fly again, you can never eat a hamburger again, we're going to end up with a much smaller climate movement than if what we say is, if we legislate that every cattle farmer feeds his cows a little bit of seaweed, which will reduce their methane emissions by as much as 95 or 99%, then you can keep eating hamburgers because then there's no carbon problem with, with beef. That to me is a much more effective message, a much more efficient message. That's incredibly well articulated, that idea. And I think I can wrap my head around it, which is basically that if your experience of diving this deep into the science of trying to look at this squarely in the eye is a proxy for how humanity is going to respond or has responded so far. And the reality is that you, even when staring it as squarely in the eyes you have, are able to compartmentalize and meet your sort of like immediate needs that appealing to people on that level will result in failure. That That's, that's a really compelling idea and I think I, I can wrap my head around it. There's this other question that it brings up for me though, which is what do you think it is about yourself that allows you to not get crushed by the weight of looking it squarely in the eye? Because while I understand that we are all eventually and inevitably going to have to look at square in the eye, and I think that's, again, like one of the central ideas of the book is like, you can't compartmentalize this completely forever. It's coming at you one way or another. But what do you think it is about you that allowed you to look at squarely, write that piece a couple of years ago, do the work that it took to write this book while like raising your daughter and watching the Knicks and not be felled by it? Well, I think one really obvious answer is uh, privilege. I mean, I'm a relatively well-off white man living in New York City. I've lived my whole life in New York City. And I do think one of the major emerging and important meta-narratives about climate change is like, this shit is coming for me and you and everyone else we know, no matter how rich we are. I think that's one of the big messages of like the Kardashians evacuating from the California wildfires. And one of the reasons why those wildfires were such powerful teaching tools for the rest of the world about climate change. But even yeah. though they had like their own private fire department. Yeah. And the rest of the state is depending on, you know, a lot of firefighters working on the California fires are, uh, convicts who are being paid a dollar a day to face those fires. I mean, it's the inequality there is really striking. But th that illustrates the point I'm trying to make, which is that it's coming for everyone, but it's coming for us in different ways, and we will be able to adapt and defend against it in different ways. And 
those inequalities will map very neatly onto existing inequalities. And I happen to be in a position of relative privilege there. Like I'm not the Kardashians. I'm not an extremely rich person, but I, by global standards, I am, I'm a, you know, upper middle class person who lives in New York. Um, and if I need to move because the sea level rise in New York city is really bad, I will probably be able to do that without my own life being so disrupted. Now, I think that's a moral indictment of me that that plays a role, but I think it's also kind of undeniable. We already as a culture compartmentalize the suffering of people elsewhere in the world and climate works the same way. Um, I think I also have, you know, temperamental intellectual inclinations that push me in a certain direction. And that is to say, you know, I'm moved emotionally by the humanitarian crisis that it represents, but that is not my only relationship to it. I also see it as the story of our time and one that it is fascinating to see unfold. And I think that's one of the reasons that I've been able to write about it in kind of cinematic register, in addition to writing about it in a kind of theological register, in addition to writing about it in a very straightforwardly scientific register because I see the story unfolding on all those levels and all those ways and don't think writing about it from only one of those perspectives is doing it justice. It would certainly not be doing justice to my own perspective on it. Um, you know, a couple months ago I was having lunch with a really prominent climate scientist who has been a major advisor on the IPCC projects and is now advising New York City on climate preparedness. And um, I asked him, are we going to build a seawall in, in New York? And he said, oh, inevitably, Lower Manhattan's just way too valuable to not protect it in that way. But, you know, he said infrastructure projects like that take time. They probably take about 20 or 30 years from real start to real finish. And that means that if we started today, we wouldn't be able to save... Howard Beach, and other parts of South Brooklyn and Queens. And he said, um, the city knows this, and you'll be able to see that knowledge soon. They'll stop repairing subway lines and other infrastructure. They'll even start telling the people who live in those communities, you know, you may be able to live in this home for the next couple of decades, but you're not going to be able to leave it to your kids. This is New York City. It's the richest city in the world and quite reasonable assessment of the climate science suggests that whole parts of it will be underwater, basically no matter what we do. So there are threats really everywhere and you can sort of pick and choose what you're going to be most scared of and most alarmed by, you know, in the book, the story that I find most horrifying is actually not about humans. It's about the Saiga antelope, which is this dwarf antelope that lived in Siberia and uh, went basically extinct two summers ago, three summers ago now, because a bacteria in its gut, which had lived in its gut for millions of years, was transformed by an unusually hot and humid summer into something much more vicious and aggressive and killed off the entire species. Now, 
we know from recent research that the human is a complex biological ecosystem. Each of us is home to millions, if not billions, of bacteria and viruses which live inside us and cooperate with us. They regulate our digestive systems and our moods. They have some relationship to mental illness and even autism. Um, the research on this is ongoing, but there's almost nothing in the way that we live that is not affected by our internal microbiomes. And, you know, I think most of those bacteria and viruses won't be transformed by two or three degrees of climate change. But the chance that some of them will be is actually quite strong. And when you think about just how precarious, how fragile the human body is and how dramatic the transformations of climate change are, it really starts to make you wonder about every aspect of modern life. Um, now, again, I don't want to be an alarmist declinist. I don't think that civilization will collapse. We're an adaptable species. We'll innovate. We'll endure. But what the world will look like will probably be quite different. And beyond waking up readers with the state of the science, I think that's sort of my main hope for the book, that it sketches a new world that we'll be living in completely transformed by climate change. The question is, what will life there be like? If it is effectively like we've landed on a different planet, what will the end result be? I mean, really, it's a, you know, I mentioned earlier, it's kind of a mythological, theological story. It's also a science fiction story. What does this crew do when they land on the new planet? Well, after all that, uh, my only question is, uh, like, uh, you want to go watch a basketball game? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it's like I said at the beginning, it's pretty bleak out there. Well, it's funny, man. My my real plan to end this was to ask you for like the one thing that had stuck in your head because there's so much. I mean, the book it is just this stack of facts, and there's there's so many, but there are a couple that like for whatever reason those are the ones that like pierced my skull. Yeah, what are, what are yours? The one, and I feel kind of dumb admitting this, but the one that I had not understood was that forests store carbon yeah i didn't get that i didn't get that these fires are also massive massive carbon releasing events it just, i didn't understand the like twofer yeah it's crazy in california now you know california is our best state when it comes to green energy and standards and every fire they have totally wipes out all the progress they make every year from yeah and i, I mean part of what was stunning about that was just thinking about that math. And also it was, you know, I, I read most of the stuff. That one I'd missed. Yeah. And I'm missing that California, the greenest state that we have in America, is getting their progress wiped out with every one of these fires. I just missed it. And there was something about that, the scope of that and the scale of that, that I've been... Uh, Un unable to compartmentalize yeah. effectively since then. But I should have known that your one fact would be uh, even more terrifying, that there's something in my body right now that uh, will be activated and maybe kill me. Yeah, I mean, as I say, I don't <laughs> think that's likely, but it's it does give you a sense of just, you know, every that, tiny aspect of every individual life and collective life is premised on a stable climate yes. and we're no longer living in a stable climate. Right. The, the point is 
there are so many of them, but one of the points is that despite all of the facts, despite your stack, there's this whole other narrative. There's this whole other plane of all the things we can't anticipate. And that is even uh, somehow sort of like more terrifying to, to yeah. come with. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, a lot of climate skeptics will say like, oh, this warming, okay, the warming is real, but it's not human caused. And it's, to me, it's like, that would be so much scarier. Because uh, if we were seeing all these impacts and we had nothing to do with it and we had no way of changing it, I mean, horror show. Thankfully, you know, we're in control. Thank you so much for bringing us back to something slightly optimistic. I appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer. And our intern this week for the last week is Tyler McCloskey. Tyler, thanks for everything. It's been uh, great having you on the show good luck with the adventure that uh awaits my friend thanks to our sponsors the primary ride home podcast the great courses plus mailchimp pit writers thanks to all of them for making this show possible and thanks very much to david wallace wells the book is um not easy to read but all of us should read it see you next week Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.